Romans, the letter that changed the life of Martin Luther, Augustine, Wesley, and I hope everyone who's listening tonight. We showed you that the book ought to be divided in four sections. Now, depending on who you are, you can outline it a number of different ways, but I like things simple. Thus, I like to look at Romans as uh, the picture of the wrath of God at first, followed by the grace of God, and we're in that section right now, followed by the plan of God that includes the Jewish people and the Gentiles, followed finally by the will of God. That's the most practical part of the book, but before Paul gets practical in chapter 12, he is intensely doctrinal in these chapters. Wrath, grace, the purpose and plan of God, and then finally the will of God. We saw in the previous chapters that great word, we spent some time on it, the word justification, justified. God declares sinners righteous. We saw that as positional, it's judicial, but then it ought to become very practical. And that's the next step, not only justified, but we are sanctified. Now, I know these are big terms to some of us, but don't be afraid of them. You ought to know them. After all, they are good Bible words. We saw that Abraham was justified, declared righteous before there were rituals of circumcision, before there was the law. We saw that David was also declared righteous on the basis of his faith. And now in chapter 6, Paul begins his questioning. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then tonight, beginning in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Both times he answers it, certainly not. We're dealing, as I said, with the grace of God. But within the grace of God, of which we all live, we still make choices. Once you come under the banner of the grace of God, God does not take away your volition. He doesn't say, well, now that you've come to me, I'm not going to allow you to make any more bad choices in life. Now, it might be great if he did that, but he won't do that. There's still volition. And part of that volitional problem is the battle between the old you and the new you. The new you in Christ, we saw that last week, loves God, loves scripture, loves prayer, loves fellowship. Your old nature doesn't like it unless it can get attention through it and be glorified through it. You have this tremendous battle between the flesh and the spirit. So, while under grace, we have to be extremely careful with an incredible power we still have, and that is the power to make choices. We can make wrong choices. Yes, wrong choices while under grace. And Paul is dealing with this whole issue of Shall we continue to sin? Now, you might think, well, why would anybody ask that? And yet, there's that part of our nature that loves to wonder, how much can I get by with and still be under the grace of God, still be called a Christian? I have a letter, and I'm going to read a portion of it to you. It says, will you please help me? The agony I feel in my conscience is like an awful grinding as I reap the results of my wasted years. I accepted Jesus at an early age, 
But later, because I was told I was attractive and had a natural singing voice, I took a job in a nightclub. At 17, I married a man that I met there. Christian friends urged me to use my talents for Christ, but I ignored them. I now have a girl 14 years old with an incurable disease. And listen, she has never been to church. God seems so far away, and I don't know how to reach my daughter. Please help me stop the terrible grinding of remorse. And it was signed, A Broken-Hearted Mother. Christian, you are under new management. To say, Lord, be my Savior, be my Lord, to be born again is to hand God the pink slip to your life. You are under new management, but there are many Christians who don't live like they are under new management. They still live sometimes slipping back into that old management vibe. And so there were four words. We covered some of them last week. We continue with it this week. Four words that Paul says in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. No, that was the first one. There's certain things you got to know. And then based upon what you know, you then take an act of faith and you reckon, that was the word Paul used, at least in the New King James, suppose is not a good term, but I reckon or I rely on these facts is true whether I feel like them or not, whether today I, I felt like that wasn't true, I felt like all of this stuff didn't apply to me, I still believe that it is because he said it. There's certain things I know that causes me to take that step of faith where I reckon it so. The third word is the word present. If you have an old King Jimmy, it's the word yield. It's not a bad term, yield. Don't yield or present the members of your body to unrighteousness, but present or yield yourselves to God for righteousness. And we told you last week that the word present or the word instruments could be translated weapons. Don't give the devil your weapons. Don't say, here, hold my gun for a while. Be careful what you do with your body. Use them as weapons in the kingdom of God to promote righteousness. The fourth word is the word obey. So those are the words we want to zero in on tonight. Know, present, or know, reckon, present, and then finally obey. He's going to use that word again tonight. We're going to read all four of them. The word know, I do get concerned as I look at churches around our country that don't make enough out of Bible study. It's like they want Jesus' light. They want gospel light. You know, if they don't want to really give people doctrine. It'll bog them down, they think. Duty is based upon doctrine. As we said last week, if the devil can keep you ignorant, he can keep you impotent. And the Bible tells us that there are things we ought to know. First Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Add to your faith knowledge in 2 Peter chapter 1, and to knowledge virtue. Now I know that when you hear terms like justification, sanctification, glorification, you think of a theologian with thick glasses sitting in a study pondering over these issues, but he doesn't live in the real world. That's not what it's intended to become. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all of those key Bible issues are meant to be realities 
that drive us forward in our Christian walks. They really ought to be blessed terms to us. We shouldn't be afraid of them. Because, uh, and this is another reason you ought to know them, you're going to have from time to time people knocking on your door or pedaling past your door on their bicycles wanting to sell you something, their doctrine, their religion. And unless you are bathed in the truth and you know the scripture, you are prey for the cultists. Cultists are looking for Christians who don't know the basic stuff. They're hoping they can find someone who doesn't know enough about who they are in Christ so that they can give them the pitch and great, sounds good to me, all the right words you use, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, sounds right. But unless you define those terms and know what they mean, you're exactly what they're looking for. So we ought to know certain things. Knowing this, know that, says Paul in this section. Now, we saw in the first part of chapter 6 last week from verses 1 to 14, that an analogy he used of what you ought to know is baptism. He says, you ought to know that you are positionally dead to the old you. You are positionally alive in Christ. And he used baptism as an example. Just like when you were baptized. And we saw that baptism is like a mock funeral service. It's like a burial service. And that's why we bring friends to come and, and watch your burial service. That's accountability. So your friends will be able to come to you from the point of your baptism and every day after that, if need be, if you were to fall into some sin and say, wait a minute, you're dead to that. I watched you get buried, man. I watched you go under the water. You were identified with the death of Christ and you came out of the water and I saw the joy on your face the commitment that you made to Christ. You know, a, a person may die privately, but funerals are always public, right? He doesn't go off and have his own burial service. He's dead. He couldn't do anything. So though he may die privately, it's very public. And so this whole idea of we know the position that we are in Christ, dead unto sin and alive unto Jesus Christ. Well, that's the position. But then comes the practice. And uh, we tried last week to show you the difference between justification and sanctification. And tonight I used a couple more terms, position versus practice. You're in Christ. That's your position. You've died to the old way of life. That's the position. You're alive in a brand new way in Christ. That's the position. Now comes the practice. Sanctification is when the position and the practice become increasingly one. Is when you and I start practicing what we know to be true positionally, that's holiness, that's sanctification. We start living like what we're declared to be. And that's also an ongoing work of the Spirit. Look at verse 15, the question. Paul loved this, by the way. This is called idiomatic interrogation. Or questioning. He asks a question and he answers it. What then? Do you remember um, Fiddler on the Roof? Remember how Tavia was going back and forth about the, the love his daughter had for this Gentile, this goy that she was dating? And he would say, on one hand, he would say, 
What if she does this and maybe it's not so bad? On the other hand, he would ask these questions and argue back and forth. It's a typical Jewish way of laying out a lesson. Paul's doing that. He was a rabbi, remember. Knowing that people would ask these questions, he asked them, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. God forbid, old King James. No way, Jose. However you want to translate it, still no. Because we're not under law but under grace. You have to understand that to the Jewish person, the law was seen as a fence of protection. We mentioned that, I think, Sunday or Saturday or Friday, one of those lessons, I forget which. But it was called the seyeg, the the fence, the parameters. It made people feel safe. Not only was there the law, but the Jews went on to divide all of the laws of the Old Testament into 613 laws. 365, they said, were negative laws. Don't do that. Don't do this. 248 were positive commandments. They felt safe because there was this fence, these parameters that that showed me how to live. So the question is, if there's no fence, if I don't have this surrounding parameter of safety in my behavior, does that mean I just go and make up my own rules? I can just do whatever I want to the point of sinning? I know it sounds like a ridiculous argument. But that is the exact philosophy of the United States of America, if you haven't noticed lately. That's postmodernism. The United States of America, by and large, is, is today, in our culture, the product of relativism over time. You make up your own rules, your own values. What's right for you may not be right for me, etc. It's a floating scale of relativism. Rel- relativism breeds this. The seat of the pants, make up your own rules, philosophy. There's a theological term for it. It's called antinomianism. You don't have to remember that. But as I describe it, I bet you'll know exactly what it is. Anti against nomianism or namas is the law. Deuteronomy. Deutero, second. Namas, the law, the second giving of the law. Antinomianism. I'm against the law of God, which means I can make up my own law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I'll do whatever I want. His answer, definitely not or certainly not. Now, it brings up an issue. It's an issue we all struggle with from time to time. And that is the relation of Christian liberty. I'm at liberty to do certain things as a believer. Christian liberty versus biblical accountability. How far can I go? It seems that when you try to call some people into accountable living, or if a church would decide to exercise its biblical mandate of church discipline, in the case of an erring brother or sister, which requires the approach of one person, if they don't listen, you bring a witness. If they don't listen, you tell it to the church. If need be, the church puts that sinning brother or sister out of the fellowship until there's repentance. If you try to exercise that biblical mandate, you may get a response like, you have no right to judge me, man. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Don't get legalistic. I don't need the law anymore. Well, there is liberty. 
you ought to know that you have Christian liberty in certain cases. And Paul talks about liberty in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, part of chapter 10, in regards to what days you can worship on, in regards to um, certain foods that you would eat, etc. Even certain clothes that one would wear. There is liberty, and the Bible says that no one has the right to judge in those areas, those secondary gray areas. At the same time, we have to be awfully careful that our liberty, what we can do in Christ, is never used, as Paul said in Galatians, as a stumbling block to others, causing others to stumble or others to sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, Be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And in Galatians 5, he says, But serve one another in love. Fire can be destructive or it can be beneficial. It can be beneficial if I cook with it. It can be beneficial if I keep the house warm with it or create an atmosphere of romance for my wife. That's beneficial. But I could burn the house down. That wouldn't be very beneficial. I could start a forest fire. That wouldn't help. I could even burn a whole city down. And so it is with Christian liberty. It can be used in a beneficial kind of a way. At the same time, it can be used to destroy other brothers and sisters. I am often asked the question, well, what about all those gray areas in the Christian life? What about when the Bible isn't very specific in an area? And I want to know the will of God for that gray area. How can I know it? Well, Paul fortunately tells us there's three ways to do it. It's all written about in 1 Corinthians. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. That's number one. In other words, though I have freedom as a believer, not everything I could choose to do is going to move me, expedite me in my goal toward becoming like Christ. So I evaluate every choice in life. Is this going to aid me in my goal in becoming holier, becoming like Christ, in serving God, expanding the kingdom? If so, great. If not, why? Why? Don't even need it. Second rule, all things are lawful for me, wrote Paul, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I won't let it dominate me. And so somebody could say, I can do whatever I want, man. Yeah, but are you becoming a slave to it? We're no longer, you're in control. There's no self-control, but that thing is controlling and dictating your behavior. It's wrong. Get rid of it. There's a third rule he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, wrote Paul, but not all things build up or edify. So then I must evaluate the choices that I make based upon, am I showing love to you if I do this? So instead of me saying, hey brother, I can do whatever I want, I've got the liberty, I can say, will that cause you to stumble? Does that edify you? Does that build you up? And then all of those gray areas can easily be answered by applying that threefold test. Does it drive me in my goal to be like Christ? Does it build up the body of Christ? Am I being dominated by a pattern or by a habit? So, hmm. certainly not, he says in verse 15. And, and let me just tell you about the gray areas. There are gray areas, but there's a whole lot more black and white stuff that the Bible definitely answers. And I have a hunch that once you start finding the will of God for some black and white areas, you're going to kind of get his heart that will be easily applied to those gray areas. You can just 
second nature go, that's not of God. That would not be profitable. And you can move on. Verse 16. Do you not know, there's the word again, the first word, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey? Those are three of the four words we're discussing. You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Before you gave your life to Christ, whether you believed it or not, you were a slave. You were a slave to the old nature. You were a slave to sin. Ephesians chapter 2. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. You were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. That's slavery. That's being a slave to the things of the flesh. Now, most people in our culture say, I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm the captain of my own fate. Nobody tells me what to do. Do you remember the time when Jesus was addressing the leadership of the nation? And he said, uh, whomever the sun sets free is free indeed. And they took offense to that. They didn't like it. They said, well, uh, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Of course, that was a lie historically. They had the Babylonian captivity. They had the Assyrian captivity. And here they say, we've never been slaves to anyone. Their whole history is that they were slaves, and at that point they were slaves of the Roman government. Whomever the sun sets free is free indeed. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's the whole point now Paul is getting to is that whomever you yield or present yourselves to obey, you are slaves of that, whether God or, or righteousness or sin. I know that you've all heard people's testimonies. I've heard some of your testimonies, not all of them, but we all have one. And have you noticed that when you hear a person's testimony, just how enslaving sin was in that person's life? Whether it was alcoholism or drug abuse or an addiction to some other behavior or just some enslaving habit. Sin does enslave. And i got to say that one of the things, every time I hear a testimony, I start feeling compassion for unbelievers more and more. And I say I feel compassion for unbelievers. I never expect an unbeliever to act righteous. I know people say, look at the world. They're doing this and the world's doing that. And there's war. What do you expect sinners to do? Act like holy people, or do you expect sinners to sin? It just proves the biblical point. All men have sinned and fallen short. Look, they're all doing it. They're good at it. But it, it shows to me, it proves the point that sin is so gripping, so enslaving, that I ought to feel a compassion for the lost. Rather than saying, you shouldn't do that. Well, you, you should until you come to Christ. You're in sin. You're a slave to it. So Paul's point is, but now we belong to Christ. We should be slaves of Christ. So sin, we all have it. We're all guilty of it. It does enslave. And you can be a slave to a lot of things. You can be a slave to um, alcoholism. You can be a slave to workaholism. You can be a slave to people's approval. There's a lot of things you can be enslaved to. 
But verse 16 is a very important principle that whoever you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. An addiction is an interesting process. It begins by a desire. Who doesn't have a desire for something wrong, something illicit from time to time in one's life? It begins with a desire. Then the person acts on the desire, might hesitate at first, but there's a thrill. And then after the first time it's done, might feel guilty, shrink back from it, but then the desire is there, but perhaps even a little greater the second time. Craving more of that activity, more of that substance, until pretty soon they engage in that more frequently, though guilty, less guilt, more justification as time goes on, soon they find themselves helpless under the power of the activity or the substance. Sin is exactly like that. It becomes so addictive. At first we commit a sin. Oh, I shouldn't do that. I feel so bad about it. Oh, God, help me. And then our minds start becoming warped as we crave it more. And if we keep engaging in it, we can reap a lifestyle of it. We're powerless before it, it seems like. It's so strong. Obedience results in slavery. That's why whenever you yield, and whenever I yield, to a temptation to do something wrong, something that God doesn't approve of, some sin, not only are you committing an act of sin, you are laying a track down that could be a habit. You're creating, you're weaving a lifestyle to where it becomes easier to do it. And you can become enslaved by it. And it can sever our fellowship with God. It doesn't mean you destroy your relationship with God altogether, but you do destroy the blessing of God and the fellowship of God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can step out of the light. We can step into darkness. It can sever our fellowship, our joy, our blessing with God. The only key, the only way back is to confess our sin and ask Him for forgiveness. It should be part of our daily prayer life. Forgive me, Lord, for these sins that I have committed against you. So if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. I'm not going to take a poll tonight and say, okay, how many think that you haven't sinned today? Because there might be somebody so deluded that they would think, well, today I, I, I really didn't sin. And then you would give yourself away as being far worse than any of us, so we won't do that. Somebody came up and told me a dream that they had. They said, Skip, I had a dream about you last night. I said, well, what was it? You know, I fell right into it. So, well, I dreamt that I died and went to heaven, and there was Peter, and he was showing me around, and there were all these clocks all over the wall of heaven. And I asked him about these clocks, and he said, well, each clock represents humans who are on earth. And uh, sure enough, underneath every clock was uh, a nameplate, you know, engraved the person's name, living on earth. And he said, uh, now notice they're ticking at different rates, different speeds. And every time a person commits a sin, 
that the uh, big hand goes around one complete revolution. Wow, you know, and he saw his own, you know, and his background and saw some others that he recognized. And he said, well, uh, where's Pastor Skip's clock? And Peter sort of looked down and blushed, and he said, oh, we have it in the basement. We're using it for a fan. (laughs) Thank you very much. What do we do? We present ourselves to God. Romans 12, he'll talk about that in depth. Present yourself to God. So know enough, know enough to reckon yourself in such a way that you present yourself to God to obey. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Oh, that's so pregnant with meaning. Speaking to these young Roman Christians, they're surrounded by paganism, idolatry, but they believed. And so he's thanking God that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now there's that fourth word, obey. Know, reckon, present, and now obey. If I were to paraphrase this, I would say, you used to work for the devil. We said last week you were on staff. He paid you good wages, the wages of sin is death, but you quit before payday. You're not slaves of his any longer. You've changed employers, you might say. You have a higher slavery. You're slaves of Jesus Christ. And it's shown by obedience. It's shown by obedience. It's not that you obey and you work up enough points to get saved. Once you're saved, you're justified, you're declared righteous, then God starts working in you, and you prove that you're a child of God. John said in 1 John, over and over again, by obedience. I heard of a couple, and the husband was all excited to go to Israel. He said, oh, honey, let's take this tour to the Holy Land. It costs this much, we can save up. And, and he started dreaming of how grand it would be, and he said, wouldn't it be great to be able to stand on Mount Sinai and and yell out the Ten Commandments? And she said, I think it would be a whole lot better if we just stayed home and obeyed them. (laughs) It's a lot easier going to Israel and shouting out the Ten Commandments than it is to stay home with your wife and children and obey them, right? But we do need to obey. That's that, that application now. The position is know and reckon. The practice is present and obey. Notice it says something. I want you to really let it sink in. Obey from what? From the heart. Parents, have you noticed that there's a difference between compliance and obedience? Oh, your child may comply with your request. There's a difference from, yeah, okay, I'll do it, because, you know, they're afraid of that spanker. Or they're afraid of the consequence or not getting an allowance or whatever it might be. But there's a difference between compliance and obedience. Now, there comes a time when you just want the child to comply. Eventually, you hope and pray with the right kind of discipline, loving discipline, that there'll be an obedient heart. The Bible says there will be if it's done right. But Jonah was somebody who complied with God wishes, but he wasn't obedient from the heart. Okay, I'll go to Nineveh. Why? He was tired of whale vomit. That's why. He didn't want to be in that thing any longer. Uncle, I'll go. 
But he was not obedient from the heart. In fact, after there was a revival, he was mad that God blessed the city so much and didn't destroy them like he thought was going to happen. Obeying from the heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And obedience proves your love. And obedience will keep you close to those that you love. Practice obedience. Lord, I don't feel like doing this. But at the same time, I do love you and I've committed my life to you and I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey you because I love you. Uh, there was a little boy that got on his bicycle, had sort of a pouty look on his face, and he was driving furiously around the block over and over again, round and around, round and around the block on his tricycle. A policeman saw him, pulled over and said, Hey, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm running away from home. He said, you're running away from home? Why are you going in circles around the block? He said, well, because my mommy said I'm not allowed to cross the street. <laughs> you know, he's running away from home, but he's still obedient enough to his mom not to cross the street. Obedience will keep you close to those you love. Obey from the heart. And, and notice something else about that verse. Obey that form of what? Doctrine. Please mark that, especially if you think that doctrine is not important. You who think, oh, I'm not into doctrine, the church is, oh, I'm very into doctrine. The word doctrine means good teaching. Are you into that? It's used in the Bible over and over again. It's a positive word. You obey God by obeying the book he wrote. He revealed his will to us. And how can you obey it unless you know it? And how can you know it unless you read it? So love the Word. Read the Word. It's God's love letter to you. Obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That doesn't imply that you will never commit a sin, that you'll never blow it. And I think I know a lot of you enough to know that that's something you are beyond anyway. We all know that we continue to fall, but we don't continue to stay in sin. His whole point is not that we'll never blow it again, we'll never fall into sin. His point is that sin as a dominating power won't have the same place in our lives that it once had. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of the flesh. In other words, they had trouble understanding some of these spiritual lessons in general terms, so he brought in an illustration of slavery, which they would be familiar with. It's an analogy to get them to understand the biblical principle. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He is using an analogy that everyone in Rome would go, gotcha. And that was slavery. It's estimated there were 120 million people living in the Roman Empire at the time, 60 million of which were in slavery. Half of the Roman Empire were slaves of one form or another. When I use the word slave, I mean the word slave. I don't mean they worked for someone. I don't mean they just had an em employer that they worked as a slave part-time and as a slave part-time for that guy. The word slave in Greek, is doulos. A doulos implies 
total control by a master. A kurios is the Greek corresponding term for a master of a slave. It means that when the master says, do this, the slave doesn't say, well, wait a minute, it's not my job description. He just figures out how fast and how pleasing he can do things for his master. That's a doulos. And if he doesn't do that, then he's not truly a slave or he'll get in trouble. And in the Roman Empire, that could mean death. So he uses that as the general analogy. In what way were you a slave to sin? In two ways. By birth, by choice. Because of what Adam did for you, we read chapter 5, he acted as the federal head for the human race. His sin plunged all of the whole human race from that time on into sin. Which means you were born with an innate propensity to do bad things. An innate, inborn tendency, bent propensity, proclivity, whatever word you want, to do sin. Every parent I've ever met knows this to be a fact. I've never met a parent who said, I've got to teach my child a couple of bad things just to, to get him to be normal. Because he's such a perfect, never does anything wrong. Now we find as parents that we lovingly correct our children because we find that the flesh is very present from the word go. It's like children go inside the home and they have the you know, divide and conquer philosophy with mom and dad. It's just kind of nature with them. And uh, when was the last time you saw an infant who wanted food or attention say, excuse me, mummy, I was wondering if it's not terribly inconvenient. Now, how do they communicate? Or gimme. And we learn to curb the flesh later on. We become better at it. We call that manipulation as we grow older, but it's still flesh. It's just not as refined. You were born with the innate propensity to sin. David said, Behold, I was conceived in sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, I had that sin nature. Have you ever seen an apple with a wormhole in it? How'd it get there? Did the worm crawl in? You know what scientists tell us? The eggs were hatched in the blossom, or laid in the blossom, and the worm was hatched as it grew in the core. So the problem was from the inside, it worked its way out, not the outside in. That's the problem with us. Sin is on the inside. So the minute you're hatched, we're rotten to the core. <laughs> and sin goes from the inside and works its way out. That is why society needs laws. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, the law, laws in society are for murderers and menslayers and, uh, uh, you know, he lists all sorts, the insubordinate, the ungodly, to keep them curbed because of that, to keep tethered the propensities of the flesh. Albert Einstein, I have a quote I wanted to read to you tonight, as he came up with a formula that brought such atomic power. He said, what terrifies me is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. That's proven to be true, has it not? That thing doesn't blow up by itself. People have to will it on others. It's not the power of the atom as much as the power of the human heart that can destroy life.
Second, you're a slave to sin. I'm talking pre-Jesus here. Not only by nature, but by choice. You have choices. I have choices. We make the wrong choices. And that brings us further into the condition. Verse 19, you presented, past tense, your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness. That's a choice that you make. So, you were enslaved involuntarily by nature. You were enslaved voluntarily by choice. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. Those are Paul's points. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You're saved right now. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, you're saved. You still have this old nature. It fights, it battles, but you don't have to let it dominate you anymore. At one time, you were free to that. Before you came to Christ, you didn't struggle with temptation like you struggle with it now. You ever figure, you ever think about that? I mean, you saw something go, I want it, I'm going to do it. But now there's that, ooh, I don't want to do it, I want to serve the Lord, part of me. But then there's that other part, struggles. But you're a slave to righteousness, Paul says. Bottom line principle, who owns you? What's your master passion? Who is your master? Bob Dylan was right when he said you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, he wrote in his song when he was walking with the Lord, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> the devil or Christ, which will it be? And so what Paul has done in these verses is amplified what Jesus has already said on the Sermon on the Mount. No man can serve two masters. He's going to love one and hate the other, serve one and not the other. And Paul has amplified that. Verse 21, what fruit did you have in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. The roads are seen. The path and the consequences are seen. Notice the path of sin. Verse 19, it's a downward, downward spiral. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Sin perpetuates itself. Downward spiral. Verse 21, it brings shame. What fruit did you have in the things which you are now ashamed? I get letters all the time from people or they'll talk to me about their past life and it's never with, you know, I was a really great sinner at one time. You ought to see how cool. No, it's like, I'm so ashamed of it. They didn't even want to talk much about it, unless they have some weird mental thing happening. But it's, we're ashamed of it, and we ought to be ashamed of it. And so what's the path of sin? More sin. It perpetuates itself. It becomes a habit, a pattern, entrenched. It brings shame. And notice the end of verse 21, it produces death. For the end of those things is death, always a separation from God. Look back at verse 19, and you also have the path of righteousness. Now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Righteousness produces holiness. So you make a decision to not follow sin, but I'm going to make a decision to do what God wants. When you make that choice, you are also developing habits, good ones, pattern. You're cutting a new groove. It produces holiness. Verse 22 
it also brings everlasting life. And the end, everlasting life. So, the path, the result. The path in following unrighteousness, you become a slave to it, and death is at the end. Following righteousness, you become a slave in a sense of freedom to Christ. And in the end, everlasting life. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Enter into the narrow gate. Few find it, he said. Few find it. And the end thereof is the way of life, not death. Where he said the the wide gate, the broad way, leads to death. A wise person, before he starts walking down a road, will ask a fundamental question. Where's it leading? If I walk in this path, what is the end result? I have friends. Some have approached me here in the church. They're uh, experts at whitewater rafting. They've taken different parts of the Rio Grande, the, the box up by Taos, and they've mastered it, and they have tried to get me in one of those things, you know, every spring. Come on, man, you've got to go whitewater rafting. And one of these days I'll succumb, hopefully not literally, but I mean figuratively, and I'll, I'll do it. They say it's thrilling, it's exciting. But they know that they're going to start here and they're going to end here. They know how the path, they know the rocks, they know where to stop. They know what happens to the river at every segment. Let's take another example. I bet that the rapids just above Niagara Falls are as exciting, if not more exciting, than the Rio Grande box. I bet you could get on those rapids just above Niagara Falls. It's like, this is awesome. There's one big problem. And that's where it's going. The Rio Grande is pretty stable, relatively so. Those Niagara Falls, unstable. So you might have a great thrill, but a bad end. Big drop. So consider the end of it. The end everlasting life. The end righteousness. So, Sin begets sin. Righteousness begets righteousness. And you know what? I found that when you begin a life of pleasing the Lord, you make Him your aim. You make serving God your aim. You do get addicted in a good way. Paul wrote about those in the New Testament. It's in the King James Version. Those who were addicted to the ministry. And I've always loved that term. Addicted to serving God, to serving others. It's so fulfilling. And if you've ever been used by God to lead somebody to Christ or give somebody a a nugget of truth from the Bible, I was speaking to a brother right before the church uh, when he said, God reveals something to me in his word and I love to go out and share it with others. It becomes addictive. You can't get enough of it. Sin becomes addictive as well. And when you commit sin, you want more and you want more And it becomes so addictive that you need to do more to get the same thrill. It's like hot sauce. I first came to this state, I could not eat this food. Now I put Tabasco on my green chili. I can't get enough of the heat. I need more to get the same kick. Sin is so much like that. You have to go further and further into it to get the first same thrill that you did at the beginning. Righteousness brings joy. 
We'll conclude with where this chapter concludes. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Phillips translation of that verse. Sin pays its servants, the wages death, but God gives to those who serve him his free gift is eternal life. See the difference? Sin is a wage that sinners deserve. Life is a gift nobody deserves. It's a free gift. He'll give it to you. He'll give everlasting life. You don't earn everlasting life, but he'll give it. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death, but God gives everlasting life. Now, let me suggest as we close a couple of possibilities for those who may be here tonight struggling with the issue that we just dealt with. It is possible to be free in Christ but live as though you were enslaved. That is, you know intellectually that you're in Christ, that you are seated in heavenly places, that the old man has passed away, that you have a resurrection life. You know that intellectually, but experientially, you still are struggling. We're going to get heavy into that in chapter 7, where Paul talks about his own struggles and sin. It's imperative that as soon as possible, you start laying the new track of proper godly behavior. You've heard the old axiom, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. If you sow a lifestyle, you reap a destiny. That's true. Right here, Paul points it out. So we need to lay down that track of obedience in little things that lead to bigger things immediately. It's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life in the sense that you're not really engaging in the victorious life. There's a second possibility, and that is it's possible to be enslaved, but to think that you're free. To think that you're free. That's delusional. That's being a non-Christian, perhaps a religious non-Christian. I'm free, man. I'm all right. But you're still captive to sin. You will never be all that God intended you to be until you change masters. Until God becomes the master of your life. Defect is my counsel to you tonight. Defect. Quit before payday. Leave the enemy's camp. Leave the devil's workshop. And go to work for God. He pays, well, he doesn't pay great wages. He gives you a free gift. He'll take care of you, but he gives you the free gift of everlasting life. Important to think of the path and the road. Remember Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? I love that film because of the, that one scene where that knight says, Choose wisely. Because as the real grail has power to give life, so the false grail has power to take it from you. And then, of course, the Nazi took the wrong one and he shriveled up and blew up in classic Spielberg style. And the knight reply was classic. He chose poorly. And that's not levity to say that if you go on to a Christless eternity that we would laugh and say you chose poorly, but you will have chosen poorly if you don't choose Christ.